You did not have necessarily Black Lives Matter people being tear gassed in Portland. You had people that were destroying property, throwing things at the federal building for hours. Then they were tear gassed by federal forces and for a time by the Portland police, but they can't use uh, tear gas anymore. There's no part of me that believes that had that been Black Lives Matter protesters attacking the Capitol building, that they there would have been any response different at all. I don't think the response by law enforcement would have been different in any way. I think law enforcement was responding to an attack, and that's what they did. I don't think that they were looking at who was doing the attacking. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is journalist Nancy Rommelman. Nancy is based in New York City these days, but she was a longtime resident of Portland, Oregon. As that city erupted into protests last summer in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, Nancy began covering the action for Reason magazine. In this conversation, she helps define the boundaries between some of the protest groups, leftist so-called anti-fascist groups like Antifa, anarchist movements like Black Bloc, and the peaceful protesters whose efforts were sometimes overshadowed by extremists. She also talks about white nationalists and their adjacent groups and contrasts some of the larger assumptions about all of this activity with what she's observed firsthand on the ground. Now, this conversation is divided into two parts. The first half was recorded in late December and focuses mostly on summer events and what led up to them. The second half was recorded just a few weeks ago and includes discussion of the January 6th events at the Capitol and how they were covered and perceived in relation to the protests last summer. Nancy Rommelman, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Megan, thank you for having me. First of all, I want to congratulate you on the tremendous reporting you've been doing out of Portland these last several months. I think you're one of the few, maybe really the only, a journalist who's like both actually on the ground and deeply looking at some of the machinations of of protesters on the left. And I guess I want to start by by framing my question sort of this way. I, I feel like those of us who only loosely follow these things tend to assume that as frustrating as it may be to see violent anarchists complicating the picture as of what is overwhelmingly peaceful protest that there aren't really that many of these violent anarchists. There can't be that many Antifa members out there. Like, it's easy to get riled up about them, but in the end, white nationalists are a far bigger threat. So I was hoping we could start with you sort of laying out who is on the stage, what kind of numbers we're talking about, and maybe what some of the biggest misconceptions are. Sure. I'm going to I'm going to start with the last question and we'll circle back around to it, um, which is, you know, white nationalists are the biggest threat. I mean, that may be the case when you look at the aggregate of the country. I can tell you uh, in Portland where the the sort of action went on for 200 straight nights, with the exception of a few nights off for the wildfires in September, by my not particularly accurate count, um, sort of pro-Trump and maybe, you know, more extreme right-wingers uh, and also like Back the Blue, which they support cops, which is considered very right in Portland. Um, and, you know, uh, Patriot Prayer, they're from over the border in Vancouver, Washington. Maybe some Proud Boys, though they weren't there a lot. They rolled through town 
again, my not very accurate count, four times on mass out of 200 nights. And we saw action every night. So, you know, you do that math and tell me who is creating the um, mayhem in the streets of Portland. It was very clearly, uh, and I can say this from being on the ground and having lived in Portland for 15 years and kind of being familiar with some of these factions, it's coming from the left. Whether you call it Antifa or, you know, Black Bloc or, you know, there's some BLM people there, though, really, <laughs> the movement sort of hijacked um, BLM's mission. So, yeah, to, to lay it out, um, sure, um, after George Floyd was killed, uh, Portland, like many, 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 many other cities, uh, came out and started to march. Portland is a marching city. They are a, a kind of an activist city. And it, at the beginning, it was overwhelmingly peaceful, including, uh, I think it was on the 27th of May, you had 10,000 people. I mean, 10,000 people, Megan, uh, marching over the Burnside Bridge from the east side to the west side. Mm -hmm. And waiting on the west side um, were the police, because as in many places in the country, the police are, you know, in air quotes, the enemy. Uh, and and people wanted to make it, make it known that they were not going to put up with this stuff, that these killings are wrong, which, of course, they are. And the cops sort of like, turned back. What are you going to do? You're going to arrest 10,000 people who actually were peacefully protesting. However, that night, when, per usual, the peaceful protests, the families, the kids and everybody, when they go home, you had a small band of, um, you know, yahoos or whatever you want to call them. I don't, I don't think it was particularly organized at that point in terms of Antifa and Black Bloc. They stayed downtown. They broke into the police station, which is called Justice Center. And they broke the windows and they broke through the doors and they threw office furniture around. This is on video. And um, people that were working in the basement, meaning part of the police department, including a woman that I interviewed and, and wrote about for reason, was basically locked down there and could hear all this stuff and could see on television that there was a fire in front of her building. Oh, my gosh. And then her, her family calling her and going, oh, my God, you've got to get out. But she couldn't get out. So that was on May 27th. and. Basically, the more violent part of the protests, as you properly framed it um, up top by a small group of people, never stopped and kind of haven't stopped. This is a pretty long time. Um, I was writing something the other day. It's like, you know, Portland hasn't been number one in anything since the uh, Portland Trailblazers won the championships in 1977. Well, they're number one in something now. They're number one in the fact that they will keep on protesting longer than any other city. I'm not sure it's a, wow, it's a, it's like a dance movement. marathon. Yeah. It's like a dance marathon of protesting. That's right. They've grown an identity from it. And, and again, even though it's a small number, um, you know, maybe, maybe there's two or 300 on a good night or a bad night committing the violence. You do have, um, I mean, I, I actually don't know the numbers, how many thousands you have sort of supporting this and, and having some sort of active active role in it. What was the protesting climate like prior to the George Floyd killing, just vis-a-vis -vis Trump resistance? Well, when Trump was elected, Portland, in the aggregate, I think it was 73% of Portlanders uh, of voting age voted for Hillary Clinton. And they, they kind of collectively lost their minds. And I was there at the time, and the marching was insane. Uh, it, it, there, were, there was marches every day and every night you know, whether it was just not my president 
or marching on ICE headquarters um, after some of the border stuff went on or, you know, the pussy hat marches. It just didn't stop. Portland is a marching city. And I think that people are energized by this. Portland is also a city that very, very much likes to talk about community. And um, I actually really never heard that word till I moved there. And then it was just like, I mean, I heard it, obviously, but the people, either they really do it or they pay lip service to it. They really want to act as one. Um, so they marched and they marched and they marched and they marched. But, you know, Trump was sort of an elusive target to hit, right? And he's sort of a master of, of evading responsibility. And I think that was very frustrating to Portlanders. So they kept trying, whether it was, you know, letter writing or, you know, compulsive CNN watching or whatever. <laughs> I think MSNBC, perhaps. That's right. Oh, yeah. man. And, uh, you know, at a certain point, and I, I remember writing about this at the time. I mean, the um, one of the local uh, alt-weeklies, you know, even <laughs> they started, you know, in the back, you've got like movies, plays, music. It's like they had a like a march section or whatever it's called, um, <laughs> the demonstration so you could know what you needed to do that week. But I remember writing about this in, oh, I don't know, spring of 2017. You know, at a certain point, you're going to get some marching exhaustion. People would be like, you know what, man, I really want to watch that that documentary on Netflix, or I want to, you know, spend some time with my kids. So it did die down. I mean, people stayed, they stayed activists, but they it did die down. But then the plot thickens. The plot thickens in that, I believe it was 2018. I hope I'm getting my, my dates correct. The city council, which is five people, they voted in to really, really activist, leftist, progressive members. And then you started to have things sort of codify in the city. It's like, well, yeah, we're angry. Now we're going to make some rules and some laws that reflect our anger. So then the city starts to turn a little, um, if that makes sense. Do you want me to describe what these rules were? Please. Okay. So one was a big renter's rights law because, you know, one thing that, uh, especially young people, you have to remember Portland is a very, very young city. People started really moving in droves to Portland in the, the early aughts. And um, it's a young city and young people tend to, you know, not have as much money and they're, they're renting. And they then saw their rents. I mean, Portland really, really uh, became more expensive from like 2005 to 2015, 16, and people didn't like that. So they wanted some breaks and they got to blame somebody for the fact that maybe they're not making them enough money and maybe it's their landlord because he's an easy easy target to hit, right? He's right there. So they they passed these renters laws, which were, you know, basically different rent abatement. Number two, uh, landlords could not rent to who they wanted to. They had to do first come, first serve, um, which I don't know, as someone, a property owner would make me a little hinky, but Okay. That was the actual law. They had to just, they couldn't, That's do, right. but they would do it back. But th this is like all things being equal. Like you do a background check, you have two equally qualified potential renters, but they had to take the first one or not even. <laughs> well, yes and no. Yes, they had to pass certain checks, but they're one of the new women on the, the city council. Joanne Hardesty, she she didn't want to have to require any sort of identification because her justification was she's she's black, was that her grandfather or great grandfather, you know, in 1904 didn't have ID. So someone like him would not have qualified to rent an apartment. It was like, uh, OK. And then the other one was. If someone was disabled, no, let me qualify that not if they were disabled, if they identified as disabled, they 
jump to the front of the line. You had to, you know, give them a proper opportunity. And if they qualified, then you had to retrofit your house to suit their perceived disability. And also, you couldn't really ask people to leave. If you asked them to leave, you had to pay them. This legislation was passed or it was just proposed? No, it, it was, was passed. passed. It was passed. And and we were in a position, uh, my husband and I, in February, we were um, we were going to rent out our house for a year this past February. Uh, and everything passed just about then. And we decided to sell because they were like, we, there, there's just too many hoops you're asking me to jump through as someone that owns a property and is responsible for the property and is responsible to, for what happens to the property. Okay, so that was one thing. Something else that passed in, uh, and I covered this for a reason at the time, I think it was February 2019, the city council decided to pass a resolution that banned hate groups in the city without defining what a hate group was. And it it passed with flying colors, Megan. Everybody felt so good about it. Yeah, it would be hard to vote against that. Was anybody even lodging any sort of Yes. Uh, opposition campaign yes. to that? Like, what would the, what would the ad look like? Like, yeah, right. we're, we're pro-hate like, group. Pro-hate group. Stand right? up against <laughs> anti-hate groups. <laughs> no, uh, there was. It was a public hearing, and there were uh, two people who said, I'm a little concerned about the, the rights of free speech, at which the mayor, uh, Ted Wheeler, said, I want that to be reflected that this has nothing to do with uh, what we're talking about here. It passed unanimously. And I remember at the time thinking, and I think I probably wrote something like it for reason, saying, well, what happens when the shoe's on the other foot? What happens when you're no longer in power? And um, maybe, you know, the people you used to think of as a hate group is now favored by whoever is in power, but they don't like the people you are. Well, Mr. Ted Wheeler has found out about that in the past year. He has become sort of the champion of the progressive element to, um, I mean, Megan, I mean, I've been there when there were thousands and thousands of people shouting, fuck Ted Wheeler, as he stood, you know, (laughs) on the podium. And now there are posters around town, you know, with his face saying wanted dead or alive. So at that time, that was February 2019. At that time, I don't think um, officials in Portland quite grokked that they were giving in to an element or giving in or agreeing with or whatever you want to call it, an element that you could not satisfy. There's no way you can satisfy what their needs are, their needs and their desires. One reason being, I don't really think that they they know what their needs and desires are, but they do know it feels super good to get their way, right? It feels like the kind of quote unquote legislation that you would see like on a college campus. It's like the student council or something. Oh, like, very, very much. And and think about that for a second. So, I mean, I, I was never on a student council, but I imagine in these meetings, you know, you've got people that are young and, you know, maybe they haven't read a whole lot of history or maybe their, their needs are sort of, um, the targets are sort of close. You know, they haven't given deep, deep thought into where this is going. And one thing I've written and said 40 gazillion times about Portland is that the activist element, whatever you want to call them, protesters, demonstrators, rioters, Antifa, Black Bloc, they're super good at breaking stuff. They, first of all, it's, I I mean, I think it's almost like an orgasmic rush um, to, you know, break stuff and and dance in the streets around a fire, right? (laughs) I think Freud had a few things to say about that. Yeah. (laughs) 
cra- crashing through or whatever. I don't, can't remember. How oh, but but think about it. You know, yeah. you've got, you've had people that have been like, they're locked in their houses because of COVID. They're, the bars are not open. They can't hook up with strangers. You know, there's no movies. Um, they're, maybe they're out of work, likely out of work, or they, they, they can't go to work. And all of a sudden now there's like, oh man, not only dude, not only can we leave our house, but we're saving the world at the same time. Okay. But I want to, I want to, Pause right here. I sure. really want to understand. Yes. Who is Antifa? How many are there? Where do they come from? Are they like a traveling band of thugs? Like, how are they defining fascist? For those who don't know, Antifa stands for anti fascist. Okay. Fascist is a word that gets thrown around all the time with abandon. What does Antifa mean to you? Let's just start there. Yeah, How do you I, it, it's define better it? If you, it's better if you ask what it means to me as what I've seen, because I can't, I, I don't have enough knowledge to describe it globally. I know it means different things in different countries. What it means to me and what I've seen on the ground. You know, let, let me start here. I did have a long sort of email exchange about a year and a half ago with a, with a true anarchist. Um, he was a smart guy. I didn't understand half of what he was saying to me um, or agree with a lot of it. Because it was complicated and like abstruse or just it was wackadoo? No, not so much wackadoo. He literally sent me like a 90 page monograph in tiny type that I, I like okay. I struggled and wept through. And I, at least he had a framework. Okay. He was looking at a historical framework and then maybe that would provide some direction of where we were going. Okay. Well, the Antifa that I have observed and what I've read from them do not have this. What they have is a lot of energy, a lot of frustration um, with what they believe to be the problems uh, plaguing Portland and plaguing the country. And they'll say it is systemic racism. They will say it's misogyny. They will say it's police brutality, especially the police. Man, they, they really, really do not like the police. And they feel that a better world will be made when you get rid of all these institutions that have supported this and created the situation. Okay. So their way of getting rid of it, I mean, occasionally you will see there's something online called like the 10 demands. You can go look that up and they're, it's basically calling for like reallocation of funds. And this is an, an Antifa thing. Yes. This is, we're not talking, I want to ask in a minute how this overlaps with Black Lives Matter, will, but let's just sure. be very clear. We're talking about Antifa yes. as an isolated entity. Yes. But mostly how it manifests is in action. And the action can be, I mean, sometimes it can actually be a little bit sweet. Like I, um, when I was at one of the protests in front of the federal building and the, the, the feds were shooting off tear gas on a really, a really strong military grade tear gas. And I got gassed like five times that night. I had uh, the little Antifa girls with medic written on their clothes, um, wash out my eyes. I will also tell you, I've had a Patriot prayer dude who's a right wing guy, wash out my eyes. So, you know, these people, as I've said before, they all get up in the morning and they put on their pants one leg at a time. And individually they're, they can be pretty good dudes or gals, right? But as a group, they do not act that way. They enjoy the mayhem of it. And what they know how to do in terms of reaching their goals, I put that in air quotes, um, is to break stuff. And they break the same stuff every day, every night. They break down the police station. They break down ICE headquarters. 
they break, uh, they go to the mayor's uh, condominium and they, they sit in his lobby and scream or set fires in front until he moves out, which is, I, I don't know how this is leadership in any form. And then because they weren't stopped and because it felt kind of good and because they're out with their friends and they're marching and they're, remember, Megan, they're saving the world, right? How many are there, though? What are we talking about? Setting a fire, are we like 5, 15, 50? So usually when I'm at these events, um, there'll be between about 200 and 600 people. Oh, yeah. generally, of the crowd. Okay, yeah. Yes. And so when you when when people say that these are peaceful protesters, these are not the peaceful protesters. And I think I got to say, man, I don't know why it is so hard. I mean, God damn it, politically for people to say there are peaceful protesters and there are non-peaceful protesters. <laughs> Do you think that you completely discredit peaceful protesters when you admit that there are not peaceful protesters? No, you're lying and you're you're lying to yourself in order to spread the message you want to spread. Get it right, guys. All right. So between two and six hundred, most are not the ones that are like smashing the stuff. It's it, you know, per usual. It's like, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 guys and gals for sure. D- the girls are definitely in there mixing it up. And are they largely white and young? Yes. Oh my God. Hi. Portland. Are they from Portland or are they coming from other places? No, they're from Portland. And you can, um, there's a pretty, really good piece. uh, A friend of mine, a journalist, uh, Hannah Ray Lambert, she works with COIN, K-O-I-N TV. She last month published uh, of uh, 1,000 arrests, something like, oh my God, it's it's less than 10%. The arrests have stuck. And that's another story that I could get into. But she did break it down also from where they came from. The vast, vast majority are from Portland. Uh, they're young. I would say 20s, occasionally 30s. They're white. Hello, Portland is extremely white. You definitely will have uh, black people in the crowd. In my experience, they will usually be in the crowd speaking, you know, through a bullhorn or rallying stuff or, or shouting different slogans um, from, you know, whether they're they're shouting George Floyd's name or whether they're they're I mean, something really disgusting I saw the other day, some like woman who's like a a hero to the movement. I can't remember her name. I did not find her heroic. I'm saying like, your president's got a little dick talking about Trump or something. It's just like really juvenile too. So yes. Okay. So to get back to my point, they're very, very good at breaking stuff. Again, I think it's some kind of release. It feels good, but I have not seen them build a goddamn thing. Nothing. And are they purporting to uh, want to build something or offer an alternative? Or is it just, does it sort of stop with the destruction? Well, I guess their idea is you got to get rid of the old before you build the new. I mean, maybe if they've even thought that far. But I want to say, like, would you completely like burn down your house before you had another house to move into? I think people that are a little more think these things through, realize like, okay, if I'm going to get rid of one system, I want to have a system that I feel is more fair in place. I think just getting rid of things doesn't work and I'll, and I'll, and I'll qualify why. The reason is because what you get rid of is a moving target. You know, first it was the cops, then it was your landlord, then it was the mayor. 
oh, who is it now? And I have marched with people when this has happened. It's they march through the streets. They shine flashlights in people's bedroom windows at whatever hour of the night. And they shout, get up, get up, get up, motherfucker, get up. Okay, so now this random woman who you don't even know who might have kids or a husband dying of cancer has to get up to go to work. She now is a perceived enemy. And I have, why? Because she's not them. And I'm Because so, she didn't get up. She's she, not well, already up. You know, I was so naive at first when I was first marching the first time I, I said to someone, I was like, do you really expect them to get up? And it's like, no, it's not that we want them to get up and march with us. But Megan, I have seen people on their porches applauding. And this is, you know, the sort of like, please don't hurt me sort of position, right? They say, no, we want them to be uncomfortable. Other people have uncomfortable lives and we want them to be uncomfortable too. So it's like, okay, so now who's the next target? Like, oh, well, obviously the answer to that is going to be the guy next to you because this is a, this is a movement that demands like, like any living organism, it demands energy, it demands calories, right? So you're going to cannibalize your, your very clear enemies, but then you're going to need more fuel, right? So it'll be the person standing next to you. We haven't gotten there yet, but it will come. It will come. What is the relationship between the kinds of groups you're describing and Black Lives Matter? Is there overlap? Because, I mean, what you just described, there's, there seems to be like a clear lack of a discernible leader or like any sort of ideology that is terribly coherent. Black Lives Matter has been accused of not having a coherent ideology. I think it's a little bit clearer than oh, what's sure. going on with Antifa, for sure. To put it mildly, so but like, is are some of these people members of both groups? Is there a crossover? How would you kind of lay that out? My experience is that the Black Lives Matter movement, which had and still has to a certain extent a lot of energy. Again, we're talking about what you need to fuel your movement. Um, it had a lot of energy and there was so much overlap. It started as Black Lives Matter and uh, the Antifa or Black Bloc crew, whatever you want to call them, said, yeah, that's what we're fighting for. And you definitely, especially around the, at the federal building in July and August, you heard, I mean, it was definitely, they were there fighting the feds, first of all, because Trump had sent in the feds, which is like anything Trump does. Like if you have a bad case of gas in Portland, that is definitely Trump's fault, right? So. They were like using their anger at Trump and at the feds being there. And the feds did not cover themselves in glory. Let's let's, you know, qualify that. It was sort of looked like Black Lives Matter. OK, the feds left. Um, and a lot of the peaceful protesters went home. Well, who are we going to fight against now? OK, we'll still fight for Black Lives Matter. And they do sloganeer for Black Lives Matter. But I don't think it's I don't really think that's why they're doing it. Um, it may be part of why they're doing it, and there may be some crossover, but I think it's, it's an unassailable mission to say you're doing this for Black Lives Matter as to say, I'm doing this because I want to bust shit up. So it's easy to, it's easy to hide behind Black Absolutely. Lives Matter. Yes. And I've observed that there's been less and less Black Lives Matter slogans and more and more anti-police and anti Local officials. I mean, uh, Ted Turner is now tear gas Ted. Kate Brown is now Ted, Kate, Ted Wheeler. You mean is the is the mayor? Yeah, they call him tear gas Ted. And Kate Brown is the governor. Is Kate Brown shirt, which is actually pretty pretty good, <laughs> I think. So there, they need enemies, 
And the enemies are going to be anybody they see standing in their way to build what? Utopia? How's that going to work out? (laughs) Are there black activists in the community that are pushing back against this and saying things like, you're really not doing us any favors here, like grow up? Yes, uh, there was a, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to remember names. There was a minister in Northeast Portland who's like, guys, you, you got to stop that. We've got to talk. There was another woman again. She was with, there's not like a big central Black Lives Matter office in Portland, but there are spurs. It's another woman that headed one of those. But the, the most recent one I saw was the day after the election. And this is a, if anybody wants to go to reason.com and type in my name, you'll find I have 14 pieces um, up about, about the protests. And the one from the day after the election, you know, <laughs> people kept saying to me, like, if Trump gets elected, are the protests going to get worse in Portland? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure it will, because it'll put like a little extra gas in their tank. And they're like, well, if Biden gets election, elected, that'll stop. And I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Do you think that these people like Joe Biden? They don't give two shits about Joe Biden. Yeah, you wrote a great piece about that. Yeah. yeah. So I marched. So getting back to your question, are there are there black activists? I was out that night, the day after the election, and we we were walking through the streets and I was following them and they went downtown and they met up with another group, a group that had a pretty tight little deal going down, like right on the waterfront. They had a podium set up and microphones and speakers. And it was like, it was pretty organized. And um, there was a, a, a black dude, I did not catch his name on stage. So he's by the waterfront. Looking across the street, which is NATO Highway there, were all the little little black block kids were. And they were like, they were like squatting like chickens over there. And he looked over at them and he's like, get the fuck over here. Stop with all the drama get over here and let's work together. And he said this like five or six times into the mic. They didn't move at all. They just sat there. And then you had like, it was actually pretty sweet. I mean, uh, that you had um, an older black activist who's like been trying to like do cool stuff for four decades up there. You had a Native American woman. They were actually telling stories. They were doing the things that you think of when you think of People trying to build bridges, people trying to make things better, people, you know, maybe working a little too much within the system, but also trying to create new stuff. Meanwhile, their their stuff is going on and off go the activists and I follow them through the streets. They're screaming at the cops and then they walk through downtown, literally just past like, just like businesses that have nothing to do with anything, including Wild Fang, which is like a completely pro non-gender neutral whatever clothing store and they just busted all the shit up and set fire to the flags and yelled at the cops and that was i think the first or second night that the governor had called in the national guard because she was afraid of what was going to happen and she well should have been and these were just it was absolute destruction for no reason of course they were shouting fuck joe biden well, because you wrote the idea that activists in Portland, at least the kind we see breaking windows and spitting in cops' faces, are in the bag for the Democrats is a product of binary thinking. I think you you put that yeah. so perfectly. I just just so our listeners are clear, I want to make really sure everybody understands when we say black block, that's another way of talking about Antifa. So yeah. the black block protesters and that they're like sort of combat gear. Like they, they dress up they in, dress black. in black. It's a kind of cosplay. I think I read oh, somewhere. Sure. I don't know. It's like, it's, that was a really good way of putting it. It's sort of as if, you know, it's kind of, I'm just thinking that uh, off the top of my head. It's almost like a sort of 
um, like punk version of a, you know, Renaissance festival, like, you know, medieval joust reenactment or something like that. Like it, it kind of comes from the same place in a perverse way. Well, it's, it's all the same, same impulse, right? You're going to go out, you're going to, you're going to break shit. Uh, yeah. Antifa is, I mean, um, Black Bloc is sort of the more active or demonstrative or violent arm of, of Antifa. Okay. And yeah, they, they dress in, they dress all in black and, and, you know, sometimes it's like super militaristic and sometimes it's super homemade. Like it, it's kind of ridiculous, you know, bike helmets and like little, little, uh, little shields that they make in someone's garage. Um, but it also, what does it conveniently do? It hides your identity, right? Sort of, uh, it hides your identity. So you can't be either, you know, a identified or also maybe even feel personally responsible for what you're doing. Right. It's like, well. I'm not. And, you know, the whole thing, like, they don't want you to, they don't want you to film them that you, you know about all this, mm. right? I've written about mm-hmm. this. It's like, mm-hmm. well, they, 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 can I talk about this for a second? Of course. So, um, one of the things we saw, uh, during the summer and into the fall were for the sort of, you know, you, you had two camps. Let's get back to binary thinking, right? It's like savages coming to your town. If you watch Fox and it's all peaceful protesters, don't mind that raging fire behind me. If you're watching MSNBC. Or CNN or, or CNN. anything yeah, I mean, else. Really. Everybody, every, you know, we became very polarized or I'm, I'm, I'm actually not, I'm not counting myself or you in this polarization. Cause I really am not, I'm, I'm just desperately ravenously curious about uh, what people are doing and why, but people needed to be on a side. And the stories that we were getting in terms of the activists and the violence was that they were peaceful they were out there fighting for Black Lives Matter and for justice. And look at the cops that are besieging them. Now, it is the case that there was police violence. Sure, of course, this is never going to change. However, the way it worked is that, you know, these these activists would show up. They, they'd pelt the police station with bags of poop or fire or break windows for, you know, an hour or two hours. And finally, the police would come out and, you know, beat them back. It was every single time. Every single time, and this I'm talking like 20 or 30 times I was out with these people, This it followed a pattern. Oh, but interestingly, if you read, mm, I don't know, the New York Times, or uh, you looked at Oregon Public Broadcasting, um, there was always the case that the police were the enemies, and video proved this. Ah, okay, how'd that work? Well, they will not let you film, meaning the activists and their press people. They have press people? Like publicists? Trailing along. Well, here's what it is. <laughs> they have people that put press somewhere on their bodies or their 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 hats. Oh. Now I don't know. I've been a journalist for <laughs> it 20- really is like yeah. school play. Oh no, it, yeah. it completely is. So and and medics, right? And the people right. that you know, it's it, they everybody has their their role. The press people can be anybody that's got a GoPro or a camera and, and good for them, Megan. I mean, great. Yeah, I guess actually we're laughing about this, but everybody's the press. Yeah, now, so. how, but good for you. Yes. But the problem is, it's like, go ahead. Sure. Do your thing. Whether you've been doing it for 25 years or 25 minutes, fine. You're, you're absolutely allowed to do it. Oh, but the issue is they won't let you do it or they try not to. Um, they, you know, twirl their umbrellas in front of you, uh, won't let you see. Uh, they stole my phone. They rough me up a bit or not rough me up so much, but like try to intimidate me. I have had people like swing giant, like steel batons at me saying, I'm going to fucking, you know, bust your head up. And I'm like, oh yeah, thanks so much. They, as I said, they stole my phone and they put my picture online saying like, be careful of this one, this right wing fash. Cause as you know, I'm a right wing fascist. 
and I was, I was filming everybody. I was filming the people behaving well and behaving badly. I was talking to everybody. I was trying to get a round story. They don't want that. They only want their narrative to be put out there. So they restrict yours and then they edit theirs to just show them looking heroic. That's the story we saw last summer. Now, obviously not everybody, if you were watching, I've never watched OANN, but I'm sure you saw just the activists being horrible. And we have seen activists behaving horribly because they have behaved horribly. We saw we saw Aaron Danielson, you know, get shot in the chest and die on the streets of Portland um, by, a, you know, Michael Reinhold, a self-proclaimed pro-Antifa guy who I actually don't think was that at all. I think he was a, a confused person looking for a movement to land on. Mm. But, you know, anyway, I forgot where I started from on this. But the story we were getting, uh, in my opinion, was very canted in order to make the young activists look heroic. And I have to say, in my opinion, they're not. And they're not because they're not building anything. They're only breaking stuff. And I, I don't see what there is really so laudatory in that. I want to make sure people understand how you got here, what kind of reporting you're doing. I know you've been tear gas at least several times. I guess yeah. it's, that's accurate. Um, yeah. So I want, wow, I want to hear what that's like. But just by way of sort of um, contextualizing your your role here, I want to talk about um, a piece you published uh, in Tablet Magazine back in July of 2019. It was a real barn burner, just a fantastic piece of writing. And it talked about the political and cultural evolution of Portland through the lens of your own experience there. So you are not from Portland originally. You're from New York City yep. originally, I believe, and that's where you are now. Yep. You and your husband moved to Portland in 2004 from Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And in this article, you trace 15 years of change, your your time there. And it seemed to me a lot of what you were getting at in that piece is the way the spirit of Portland went from a kind of grassroots, more authentic expression of activism, like the, the keep Portland weird bumper sticker. Although I guess once something ends up on a bumper sticker, yeah, it's authenticity it's waiting. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Austin, I really think Austin was like the first to do the, the keep Austin weird. I feel like other cities might have stolen it. Anyway, that kind of spirit went from something just sort of organic to something that felt more like a brand. So maybe you can talk about that piece um, a little bit and just sort of the, the Portland, you know, you were you you talk about how everybody started coming there in the early aughts and that would include you. So what drew you to Portland and how did you become uh, disillusioned uh, over time? Thank you. First of all, for citing that piece, that piece turned out exactly how I wanted it to. So wow, I how very, often does that happen? I know, yeah. so I'd be very happy for people to read it. We came to Portland in 2004 because we were living in L.A. and my husband, uh, we, we were looking to buy a house. Um, my daughter was mm, 13 at the time. And my husband, the direct quote, said to me, Portland is not the horrible, depressing city it was when I grew up in the 80s, when everybody was a junkie and you had like the followers of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh in their orange clothes wandering <laughs> around downtown. So why don't we go up there and look? And he took me up in May, which is when Portland is like planet of the plants. <laughs> He knew what he was doing. Oh, yeah. my God. It's total propaganda because it's so crazily beautiful. And we bought a house like literally it was like falling off a log. It was so easy. Whereas in, in L.A., ha, ha, ha. You know something about that lady, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can buy a log that you can fall off of if you take out a big enough mortgage. 
So you're saying it was easy to buy the house because of the prices were low. Easy. The prices, it was just great. And we loved, and it, I, okay, so I'll be perfectly frank. I'm a New York City girl, uh, big city, Los Angeles, big city. Portland always felt small. The thing I, I never liked about Portland is that you couldn't get lost. Like in New York, really, you get lost all the time, which is just great. You just can wander and, and sort of discover new stuff. Portland's a bit finite, but um, it had a lot of opportunity. The people were nice. My husband built a business. My daughter had so much sort of freedom there that she wouldn't have had in LA where she went to like private school. She could just like, she could almost be like, she wasn't punk rock, but like she could punk rock her life. And, and it was good. She was going to private school in LA. Just yeah. To be clear. Yeah. Whereas, you, and you were working as a journalist. Let's oh, let everybody know. Sure. You've always been a working journalist. So you came from that and then you were, yes. Okay, yeah. I've so been a journalist know. since the 1994. I wrote for the LA Weekly for 15 years, I've written for the New York Times, LA Times, everybody, I've, every place. I've written for a lot of places. So went to Portland. My husband started a business, a coffee roasting company and some cafes. I was uh, working locally as a journalist, working nationally as a journalist. I was working on a book. Um, and life was, you know, if not as dynamic as I might have liked it to be in terms of media, because there really isn't much media in, in Portland. We had a nice life. And we had nice friends. And um, you know, it was pretty loving, I would say. And then things sort of started to, you could really feel like, uh, it's like when you're, <laughs> it's like, ooh, it's getting a little chilly in here when that wind blows a little bit when you're on the beach. When did Portlandia go off the air? Like 2000? 2018. Oh, 20, oh, so it was still on. Yeah, okay, yeah, because, yeah. you know, because you talk in your piece about, you know, what drew you to Portland and there was this, you know, quote unquote, community spirit, however you're going to, you know, community as a core value, however you're going to define that. Portlandia came along and made fun of all of that. But I wonder if that show might represent the last gasp of the left's ability to make fun of itself. Like, do you think a show like Portlandia would even be possible today? No. And it almost wasn't possible then in terms of uh, the locals. The locals, there was always a lot of, of course, you know, it's the chattering class and the the media heads, but there was a lot of grumbling about Portlandia at the time. You know, like, you know, you're making us all out to look like this and we're not like that and you're parodying us. And it's like, guys, just laugh. And I actually read a quote from Carrie Brownstein, the co-creator, yeah. the other day. She's like, I, I feel like Portlanders got this show less than anybody else. I, I don't know <laughs> that Portland ever had a giant, I mean, some did, of course, um, had a gigantic sense of humor about itself. And I, I, you know, I don't know why it was, you know, it was kind of thrust onto the national stage. And, and, and when, when that happens, like, I mean, you know, exactly what this is like making, you write something and, and, you know, a lot of people are like, yay. And then you have the contingent that the loud cranky people like, boo. Well, I think that's what happened to Portland. Like all of a sudden they were like the, you know, the invisible little sister of Seattle. And all of a sudden they're like, thrust into the dance floor and 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 I don't know that they they liked all the attention you know some of it hurt and um they they didn't like that didn't feel that was fair you know no fair but part of the conceit with portlandia was that it was you know portland was a metaphor for sort of crunchy leftism in and of itself so like it wasn't it was about portland like and on a literal level but it was about something much larger so you know in terms of your reporting and and the way that you look at the the political 
conversation, like uh, how helpful is it to view Portland as a kind of laboratory for how the left is manifesting itself more, more generally? Like when we talk about Portland now, are we just talking about that city or are we talking about something much larger? And if so, what are the contours of that? I don't know the answer to that question, Megan. Um, I think, you know, we see these sorts of um, movements or desires to have these movements in other cities. We see it in college campuses, certainly. But I think larger cities, you have so many more different types of people and attitudes moving in and out that I don't know that you ever gain the sort of traction that you do in a small city like Portland. Portland is also... um, for the most part, very, very middle class. And people really are not interested in this kind of activism. They want to like go home and have a job and be with their kids and, and, you know, go kayaking on the weekends. That's what they want. And so they're just going to stay quiet. Well, people that stay quiet allow the larger, louder, not larger, the, the louder contingent to sort of, sort of take, um, the stage, and of course, the media has 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 eaten up this with with a dessert spoon all summer. You know, it was like, look at these crazy hooligans, or look at these heroic young people, whatever it is. I don't know what's going to happen with the movement in Portland. I'm constantly asked that. Sometimes I think that it's just going to kind of peter out. Like maybe people go back to school, they go back to work, or they realize. I, I have talked to what I call the the reluctant revolutionaries, the people that really were very pro this when they thought it was BLM, when they thought it was like let's make the cops more accountable, and then all of a sudden, not only are they they you know setting fire to the police station, but oh, these people are actually setting fire to the tables in front of the restaurant where they work. And because they were not perceived like you're not enough with the revolution. So now we're going to fuck you up, too. Well, those people decided to stay home and uh, play whatever that game is, Catan or whatever it's called. So maybe it dies out. Maybe this is what I've been concerned about. And it was borne out once um, when we really had a lot of violence going on at the Fed building. I was like, all right, so are they going to start building bombs in basements? Nancy, we interrupt the previous conversation to bring you back. Listeners maybe can't tell, but (laughs) a month has passed. A month has passed since that last sentence that you uttered. Um, Sitting here the whole time. Not really the normally the way I I do interviews, but you know it's brave new world. So uh, I wanted to. It's the 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 conversation we were just having. I was scheduled to post the week of January 11th, and the Capitol insurrection happened on January 6th. Uh, this is not the kind of podcast where I have like a million producers or even one producer or even one person helping me. Uh, so I can't really like get somebody back on and get an updated interview uh, going right away. So I have now brought you back a couple of weeks after uh, the events at the Capitol were a couple days post-inauguration. Uh, and I wanted to just, uh, by way of sort of putting the Antifa piece in a greater context, talk about, uh, Nancy, where you were uh, uh, on the day uh, of January 6th, how you witnessed the events and sort of what was going through your head as you were watching everything. Uh, well, first of all, I'm glad to be back with you, Megan. Um, well, it was sort of interesting. I was in Mexico 
I was in La Paz, Mexico. I had landed the night before and, um, you know, got up and it's going to be, you know, your first day. Uh, my, my husband had just relocated down there. I hadn't seen him in a couple of months. My daughter was with us. We were just going to have this nice, lovely hangout day. And of course we woke up and, um, there was the attack on the Capitol. Um, and it felt to me, and I'm just going to start with this because I really did feel this way. I really felt as though I should have been, um, in America. I was not, I mean, of course I was happy to be with my family, uh, but I had people saying, oh my goodness, you must be so glad to be away. I felt exactly the opposite. I felt like this was happening to my country and I felt like I had to be there, whether just as an American um, to be with my people uh, or to be report reporting on it. So of course I kind of stayed glued to the story. It was very similar to what happened. Um, and the feeling was similar to what happened when I was in LA during 9-11. I'm not comparing uh, what happened at the Capitol to 9-11, but just the sense of, I was in, in New York. I mean, I was in LA. Yeah. I felt the same way on 9-11. I, I was not living in New York at the time. And I always feel like that's the day I stopped being a New Yorker. Well, the day I was not there. I was in LA. My parents, my family, everybody was in New York. My dad was like shaving right across the river. He lived right uh, mm. in Brooklyn Heights, like watching the buildings come down. And I really felt like that's where I needed to be. So um, where was I? I was in for uh, what was happening at the attack on the Capitol. I was in La Paz. I was watching the news. I was hoping that it was going to um die down fairly quickly and we wouldn't see this sort of continuing rampaging going on for days, which was the case, which was good and which to me makes sense. Yeah. So that's, that's where I was. Did you draw similarities between some of the protesters uh, at the Capitol and some of the kinds of protesters you'd seen uh, at Antifa rallies? Like what, what did you just sort of make of the demographics of the whole display? Well, um, it was, to me, they were, I mean, there's similar impetus, emotional impetus, but the, the characteristics were just so markedly different. Um, when you've been at these sort of Antifa, these violent Antifa or black blocker, you know, and, and the other random people that are joining in, they're, they're, fairly small. I mean, they can cause a lot of damage and get a lot of news coverage, but you're talking, you know, a couple of hundred people. Um, they may have felt aggrieved and upset for a long time and there could be momentum building and they, they could cause a lot of damage, but the organizational properties were very different than what we saw on the Capitol. I mean, you had people coming from all over the country um, who had been sort of animated by the same animus and frustration. And I guess had been on like message boards together. I, I don't know the fact, was it like 8,000 people that were at the Capitol? I know that there were not that many directly involved in the rampaging, but it was a, it was a different kind of swelling. I don't think that they were more organized when it came to committing the mayhem at all, because that's, usually going to be the same, you know, two, three, five, six hundred people. And, you know, look, if, if you or I or anybody, you know, go someplace that you've never been, you've never been there before, you don't know where the entrances are, you don't know where the exits are, you just have this mass of, ah, it's going to be super, super messy. And it was super messy, as we saw. Well, what did you think about the lack of security? Were you surprised? 
or did you feel like there was some sort of hashtag complicity going on uh, among some of law enforcement? I did not um, see that there was complicity in law enforcement. I haven't done the forensics to um, know, you know, I, you know, you heard certain things and you heard that there were, you know, a few people in Congress that were, you know, sort of giving uh, people uh, schematics of the building and what they could do. I think, you know, this, again, if the, if the people that are doing the rampaging and, and attacking have never been there, well, the people, even law enforcement, they have not had this number of people coming to, you know, overrun the building. Now, should they have had advanced knowledge, better advanced knowledge than they appear to have? Sure. I mean, I think that we we can always say that we can always do a better job. Um, I think that, I mean, you've seen some of the videos of people acting incredibly heroically um, in terms of, of law enforcement. You've also seen the very, very odd odd video of this one security guard as as some people sort of like go into the main chamber and they're sitting around the guys like hey could you maybe like maybe not sit on that I, I don't know that was a little a little strange to me could they have been better prepared sure and I think maybe that would have been a good idea because I think they kind of knew this was coming but you also like how many people should they have had there six thousand law enforcement and then what 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 would have been the message then? Like, oh, wow, look at what they're, you know, prepared to do in this case. But did they do it to Antifa this summer? No, you know. Right. So the whole narrative that if the Capitol protesters had been Black Lives Matter protesters, they would have been tear gassed immediately. So that kind of talking point came up right away um, as these events unfolded. Uh, You know, I probably had exchanges with like six different people that day in the days that followed that were absolutely convinced that this was just an an overt uh you know un, unquestionable example of of the uh the the, the difference between the you know law enforcement's response to protesters on the left versus protesters on the right uh how is it possible that in Portland the black lives matter protesters were tear gassed and in this case they were you know, easy, easily able to get into the Capitol building, um, that logic started to feel like an article of faith. And, you know, as we talked about in the first part of this conversation, it was a very, very different kind of protest. The protests in Portland had gone on for, for days. But like, I, I, I frankly, it I felt like kind of a jerk, like trying to rebut my friends who were who were advancing this logic. And I'm like, why, why die on this hill? So Nancy, let's talk about why kind of questioning that narrative may be a a hill worth dying on. Why why does it matter? I think it, well, what your friends are saying, and I, and I actually don't think it's logic. I think uh, they are continuing the narrative that we've, you know, seen this summer that has been spread by the more, you know, liberal parts of the media that, you know, um, Black Lives Matter uh, people are constantly going to be besieged because the police are the enemy. They are axiomatically the enemy, and um, that's that. And we should just believe that. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, who was tear gassed in Portland because that's the thing I can really talk about. You did not have necessarily Black Lives Matter people being tear gassed in Portland. Um, you had people that were destroying property throwing things at the federal building for hours, then they were tear gassed by federal forces and for a time by the Portland police, but they can't use uh, tear gas anymore. 
there's no part of me that believes that had that been Black Lives uh, Matter protesters uh, attacking the Capitol building, that they there would have been any response different at all. I don't think the response by law enforcement would have been different in any way. Um, I think law enforcement were was responding to an attack, um, and that's what they did. I don't think that they were looking at who was doing the attacking. Um, now, I think the characteristics of of what the attack was happening on the on the Capitol building were very very different from what I saw um, in in Portland. I mean, the idea. I mean, I'm sure you read this and heard this um, that it was actually Antifa that was attacking the Capitol. Did you did you hear that? Or I heard that there were sort of sprinklings of Antifa people in there, or there were maybe kind of like LARPers who showed up for uh, who would show up for anything like that. I, I kind of heard that kind of thing. Well, it's possible. I mean, it could be the case that, you know, you, you, uh, some people that are usually like on the quote unquote other side, they're like, Ooh, dude, let's go uh, join this, this big, big attack here. I mean, that could have happened. Um, this was a very different sort of, I think it had a different emotional propulsion, um, yeah. going to it. But, but I, I actually, did not have any people in my crew saying, um, oh, wow, you know, this is, you know, if those were Black Lives Matter protesters, they would have been totally, you know, they would have been shot and murdered. Or I heard that, but I don't think they, that anybody can really, anybody that's really looked at this can back that up. In terms of bringing weapons to an event, I want to just make sure we get to something that I may have forgotten to ask you in the first part of this conversation. Does Antifa, like, carry guns? What's the protocol there exactly? Does it have to do with open carry laws state to state or how armed are they? Okay. So um, when I started covering the protests, you had mostly people were not carrying any kind of weapons. I mean, sometimes they had in their backpacks, like they would have a wrench. Um, They carried umbrellas and that, you know, those were dual purpose. Um, You could like shield people uh, doing things you didn't want the cameras to see, or you could, you know, poke it at somebody. Bayonet. Yeah. um, Then, and, and I did see a few, they have these like retractable steel batons, right? So like you can like flip it out and it, and it becomes a steel baton. I saw a few of those sort of toward the beginning. Then there were more of those. Um, also armed with, um, you know, small sort of, what do they call them? Improvised explosive devices, high-powered fireworks, um, those really high-powered lasers that they would try to shine into officers' eyes to uh, blind them. They were shining them into the federal building. And that's actually a super problem because if you actually do temporarily blind people, and if you shine that like at a pilot, you can be charged with attempted murder because he can you know, maybe crash his plane. Um, so the, the, you know, obviously we're in Portland for all these nights. The, um, weaponry is going to, is going to amplify, right? It's like, well, we did, you know, it's like, it's like, if you do drugs, like you could do a little bit of drugs one night, you need more drugs the next night. Right. Not that I'd know anything about this, but, um, so then you had, uh, during the summer, you had, um, you know, Michael Reinhold who, uh, shot Aaron Danielson, you know, point blank dead in the, 
in the chest. He claimed to be big pro-Antifa, pro-BLM. I basically thought he was a, a searcher looking for a place to be a hero. And of course- Wait, he, where was this? This was in Portland the, um, okay. uh, uh, at the very end of July. Um, the the sort of a, a more right-wing protest rolled through town. And um, afterwards, a couple of guys from the Patriot Prayer Movement were, were walking around downtown and they encountered this guy, Michael Reinhold. He shot uh, Jay- um, uh, Danielson, Aaron, in, into the, in the chest, Aaron Danielson, and he died. Um, and he was, you know, Patriot prayer. So he's considered right wing. Uh, Michael Reinhold was, you know, proclaiming to be pro BLM Antifa. Well, and then he did this interview with Vice saying, well, I'm here to like, you know, I'm here to protect my black friends. And then he was kind of ambushed by law enforcement and killed himself five days later. Anyway, he was carrying a gun, but I don't really consider him emblematic or representative of, um, of the, let's say, Antifa. However, the last time I was there, the, I was on the ground in Portland um, the day after the election, and I went marching off with um, some of the Antifa folks. And two guys were open carrying rifles. They had rifles. And um, they talked to me. They were young guys. They'd grown up in rural areas, I think in, in Oregon, maybe in Washington. And they're like, well, you know, we're we're here to protect people. They were actually quite calm. They're like, we're here to protect people. And we've gotten a great reception that we and they were open carrying right because you 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 can open carry that. It seems like a lot of people are worried about just the amount of guns that people on the far right seem to have as opposed to people on the left. So if you've got a lot of lot of um, angry MAGA people, people who think that the election was stolen, people who really, really think that we are in a severe crisis, um, that, that any legislation being passed is just uh, not only not uh, legitimate, but, but destructive to the Republic, those people have guns and we don't. So what do we do with that kind of appraisal? Well, interestingly, uh, the we don't, I'm not really sure that that's true. Everybody told me, not everybody, I had a lot of people tell me that gun sales went through the kazoo um, this summer. Yes. And I don't think- People was, on the left are buying guns, but yeah, I'm not sure we know which, how to use them very well. That, which is a problem. It's like, if you're going to own a gun, it'd probably be a good idea to know how to use it. Um, wait, what was the first part of your- well, are we, oh. are we worried because those people are armed? It's just, well, it's a very simple equation. Okay, well, let's, okay, we saw, okay, so those people that we said that we assume are heavily armed and are going to storm en masse, I mean, we wanted to say that about what happened uh, at the Capitol. Well, it, terrible things. A police officer was killed. A woman was shot. Um, but that's what happened. Do Are we going to get, you know, 74 million people uprising. I got to tell you, I know I'm sort of the eternal optimist, but I feel I feel two ways about this. Number one, I don't see 74 million people. You know, the people that voted for Trump, most of the people that voted for Trump are pretty, are pretty, are normies. Okay. They were people that were dissatisfied with the other branch of government. And they're like people that have families and jobs. And, you know, they're not this sort of you know, scary image that we have of someone heavily armed with a gun. I mean, to think that that's anybody that voted for Trump fits that profile is just, is lunacy. Okay. Number two, I got to tell you, Megan, I think people have, are fickle and I think people want to move on and they're interested in change. And I think that we're already changing. And I know that there are people that are saying, you know what, including, oh my God, was it Lindsey Graham the other day? Like the future, the future of the Republican party is Trump. I, I don't buy it. I don't. 
I think people have shorter memories than that. And I think they want to, they want to date the new boy. Okay. They want new things. And or in um, this case, the very old new boy. Yeah. They, but no, they want some, they want new. And I don't mean that. I don't mean they want Biden. Yeah. I think that no. people that had, you know, that were all starry eyed for Trump, guess what? They want to be starry eyed and they're going to be starry eyed for someone else. I, I, somebody I, like Josh Hawley. Boy, well, I just don't, I just, are we going to see like interesting coalitions? Sure, we might. Um, Are we going to see, you know, new ways of doing things? That would sure be fun. Um, Let's see. I just think that, I think that, you know, life is like a conveyor belt and Trump is moving on down. Uh, That's what I think. I think he's going to, he's going to pass. He's not going to be, he's not going to be people's boy anymore. That's what I think. So, well, Speaking of your internal optimism that you have just put on full display, tell us about your new venture, your new media venture. Oh, well, our new media venture. Gosh, doesn't the entire world know about it? Uh, Okay, yeah, Paloma Media, kids. Go um go over to Twitter to, you know, at Paloma Media, because that's about the only sort of solid um, uh, social media presence we have. So how did this happen? Uh, A couple years ago, Matt Welch, which... uh, a whole bunch of you people probably know he's part of the fifth column. He's the editor at Logic Reason Magazine. He's been my buddy for nearly 20 years. We started kicking around the idea of um, of creating a new media company. Obviously, we were not the only people. You see things like, you know, the bulwark and, you know, other places. People are like, look, media is changing. We still want to create content. We know a whole bunch of people that we think have interesting sensibility. Let's sort of, you know, kind of corral all of it and see if we can build something. We figured we'd just put it online. And we kind of walked down a bunch of different garden paths with different people like Punk Rocket or you know, get $40 million from the tech bros. Well, <laughs> what we wound up doing was just building a little studio across the hall from my apartment. And we are um, the fifth column. You guys got to listen to it. Um, that's where they do their their taping now. They also do their Patreon episodes there. I'm going to be starting um, a podcast from there. And we're just inviting people in there to come come talk about things and, and let's see where it grows. I mean, we're... <laughs> nice slip. Let's see where it goes. So it's not really a huge venture now. It is attached to... Um, I'm going to plug my new Substack, which is just nancyrollman.substack.com. Um, we're going to be starting to launch a whole bunch of new material out of Paloma and uh, come see it. I think you'll like it. Um, I mean, you know, Megan, you're one of the people we want in the room there, of course. And uh, I love the idea of a recording studio as long yeah, as I don't have there. to like stress. 80% of the stress of this podcast is technical. So, uh, well, it's like, all set up. I mean, I, I actually. You figure out how to do mic settings on the guest's end. I would. I would pay you. Well, so we, we're, we're going to have my, our friends get to use it for free, but people can come and rent it from us. But um, yeah, it's all set up in there. There's a, I guess, a, okay, I don't even know if it is called a mixer, but <laughs> Michael Moynihan set yeah. it up. Matt bought it. We've got four really nice mics. We're going to be putting some cameras in there. And basically, we're just going to do whatever we want. If we want to put on a variety show, we're going to put on a variety show. If we want to just do podcasts, if we want to do video, that's what we're doing. And uh. I, I got to tell you, we were in there the other night until 1.30 in the morning, just having so much fun. And of course, got a little other room that's like the little bar in there. We got some Christmassy twinkle lights and a beverage, and it's just super fun. We are we are having so much fun, and uh, I'm sure we'll be back in there recording within the week. So yeah, stay tuned. 
Well, Nancy, thank you so much for coming back on for part two of this conversation. It's not something that's happened on this podcast yet, but uh, the way things are going, uh, it will probably happen again. So um, thank you uh, for your amazing reporting and let's talk again soon. Yeah, next time at Paloma. You got it. That was my interview with journalist Nancy Rommelman. Her work has appeared in Reason, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and other publications. Her latest book is To the Bridge, A True Story of Motherhood and Murder. You can find her at nancyrom.com. That's Rom with two M's. Follow her on Twitter at at Nancy Rom and on her Substack, nancyromelman.substack.com. She lives in New York City. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. This is a production of Me and Me Alone. So if you'd like to support it, please go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, all the usual podcast places. If you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a rating and or review. For more information about the show, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. I hope you'll tune in next week. I'll announce the next guest very soon on the website and all the usual places. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover. And so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family support services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.